On his journey to the heart of the Congo, Marlowe learns of a famed ivory trader named Kurtz, a remarkable man, a universal genius, a painter, poet, and musician, a man whose success in his trade has been unparalleled, but whose unsound methods have put him at odds with local bureaucrats. When Marlowe finally meets Kurtz, he hears firsthand the trader's essential characteristic, a deep and commanding voice, which, combined with his methods, has earned him disciples and inspired local tribes to worship him as a god. But what message does Kurtz speak into the terrible silence of the African wilderness? And what deficiency, as Marlowe calls it, might be hiding beneath his eloquence? Today, we're discussing Joseph Conrad's 1899 novella, Heart of Darkness. This is Aaron Alonik. And this is Wes Alwyn. And you're listening to Subtext. So before we begin, I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for The Partially Examined Life, we won't always be here and not all episodes of Subtext will appear here. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe to us on the podcast app of your choice, either by going to subtextpodcast.com slash subscribe or by searching for us within the app itself. So I have a confession to make, which is that this is the first time I have ever read Heart of Darkness. Really? (laughs) Yeah, which I think is kind of embarrassing, but it's one of those things. Well, for a while, I kind of, I thought that maybe I had read it, you know, because sometimes you read things, don't remember. And it's it's such a classic, such a standard book, obviously, in so many high school and college curriculums. But uh, as I was reading it, you know, familiar with the plot, of course, but I was like, I've definitely never read this before. Yeah. So the first time was day before yesterday. So we'll see. what. (laughs) That's so interesting. I'd figured you had taught this a lot in high school and that this one would be a breeze for you. Right. You would think. I was worried that you weren't all that enthusiastic about doing this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I wasn't because I, you know, I guess I had resisted it. Like I could have gone to it after college if it hadn't crossed my path earlier. And, and I haven't even seen all of Apocalypse Now, to be honest. Oh my God. I've seen large chunks of it, but I don't think I've ever sat down and watched it from beginning to end. I think this is the first time over the course of the podcast that I'm actually encountering something for the first time, which has been interesting and maybe thematic <laughs> for the purposes of this recording. Yeah. I mean, I haven't read this since high school. I think the most recent thing I've read for Conrad, which I really liked and analyzed in detail, was um, The Secret Sharer. That's many years ago. And rereading this, I didn't remember a lot of it. You know, I knew the basic plot. The plot is very basic. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, and, and a lot of it is just a reflection. The only thing I really remembered about the book was the scene in the fog and the attack and the, well, it's after the fog actually, but I always imagined it being in the fog and the attack in which the helmsman is killed with a spear. And that's it. That's like the one <laughs> memory I had of the book. I knew from my you know, reading of The Secret Share that Conrad has such an interesting style of writing that obviously has something to do with the fact that English is his third language. It's brilliant, but it's also syntactically complex. So I knew that coming to this, it wasn't going to be, I'd have to ease myself into that and you and you sort of pause and reread things it reminded me of uh, billy budd actually and i thought wow these sailors really you know they, they're into <laughs> some ornate <laughs> syntax with their writing yeah oh gosh that's funny i certainly see some influence from the french in here there's a, a sort of pile up of adjectives it's like a 
<laughs> like a wreck in the middle of every sentence that all these adjectives have collided with each other. Well, supposedly Flaubert was a big influence, right? I don't know a lot about that, but that's I heard that mentioned. Sure. Yeah, but I think it's just stylistically French like to take a bunch of adjectives and kind of string them together. But yeah, it's it, I guess I had a similar feeling as as when I first started Billy Bud, which was for the first 20 pages. I, I didn't find it difficult per se, but I I just I it didn't really hook me and um I wasn't super interested in it. I was like, oh man, you know, what am I going to say about this? I don't, I don't really like it. And then all of a sudden, like, I think when the ship that he's on sees the African coast or he's, I I suppose he's along it all the while, but when he talks about uh, dropping off the Frenchmen or whoever on the shoreline and like not caring if they drowned. And then specifically the image of that man of war ship firing Mm -hmm. into the continent I was like, oh, okay, this is really cool. So, yeah. so that was the moment at which I was really hooked. Though I liked certain things earlier, but yeah. And from then on, it was, it was smooth sailing, so to speak. <laughs> I actually find the beginning kind of enchanting, but it was slow going. And then, yes, as it, you know, I had the same reaction as you, it's as things pick up. I mean, re- really the novella is a, most of it is just a reflection, right? Most of it mm-hmm. is Marlowe's, reflection on the effect on him of taking this trip up what is presumably the Congo River. This is something that Conrad famously did himself, right? So this is a very autobiographical novel. Even the whole story about Marlowe's story about being a child and being into maps and seeing a blank space on the map and and wanting to go to this one of these dark places. That's something that is actually autobiographical for Conrad. And so, yes, this is all a vehicle for a reflection on Conrad's experience of the Congo at a time when it was controlled by Belgium. Well, not even Belgium per se, right? But it became right. the private property in 1885 of King Leopold II, who turned it into his fiefdom and ruthlessly exploited it for ivory and then, and then rubber. We hear a lot about ivory in the book, but... In the end, it was rubber was the big thing, and the atrocities were were limitless and unspeakable. Right, slave labor, amputations were widespread in the end because there was an occupying military force that, to prove that it had killed people, uh, was supposed to bring back amputated arms of people, and this in part was to make sure that they spent all their ammunition and that it couldn't be used for a rebellion but to save ammunition they would there were lots of massacres but they would also just kill people and cut off arms and that what ended up being ruthlessness the king leopold was able to get that fiefdom by arguing to the rest of europe that this was a humanitarian and philanthropic mission that basically belgium and the rest of europe was invited to right it was going to be free trade for everyone was invited in to not just to do quote unquote trade but to help civilize the natives so the book is a reflection on that tremendous and uh, tragic hypocrisy. This is not just exploitation, but the justification of it as a humanitarian mission. And Kurtz, in a way, is made to personify all of that, right? He's a quote-unquote gifted person, right? A painter and a writer and a musician, a, a, a renaissance man who goes in with the highest of ideals, in contrast to a lot of the, the people there who Conrad calls faithless pilgrims who who are just cynically out to get rich. Kurtz was someone different, and then he he becomes in a way the uh, extreme representative of 
colonial cruelty. So it's largely a reflection. And and actually, I was going to say the it, towards the end, it, I find it it gets a little bit tedious because it's very it's a very re- repetitive uh, reflection. I think it's great. It's a wonderful book, but uh, the enchantment part of it wears off. I agree. Yeah, it certainly needn't be any longer. And the also the density of just, mm-hmm. I mean, as I was reading, you know, I've starred or highlighted or, you know, written in the margins, of, you know, multiple times on every single page, especially at the beginning, you know, one's enthusiasm for that kind of wears out towards the end. But, uh, you know, there's certainly a lot packed in here. And I, I like the conceit too, that there's a frame narrative as well, mm-hmm. which very rarely enters in. And we have the actual narrator or the 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 original, the OG narrator is on this boat, on this, say, I think it's a sailing ship, right? The Nelly with Marlowe and a few other unnamed characters. I think the, a, a lawyer, an accountant, mm-hmm. and some director of companies. So people who are, I guess, you know, representatives of, of London society, maybe. And the narrator is sort of himself, sort of pro-colonization, pro-England. Um, and then Marlowe comes in and sort of gives an al- alternate reading of that though i mean we can only speculate of course about how much conrad actually believed some of the things that marlowe says and how marlowe's more nuanced reading of the atrocity cc's and of kurtz's own gifts is a little bit more ambiguous maybe than uh, Mm -hmm. purely sardonic and a sort of condemnation of colonization right so it's clear that this is an anti-colonial book and that that's conrad's sentiment and that's what he's doing with this book that's not hidden but the yeah there is a long-standing debate about the extent to which we can attribute marlowe's opinions to conrad which of course we can't we we can't even identify conrad with the, the original narrator these are fictional personas and every author is exploiting the fact of that fictionality so some people want to accuse Conrad of racism for his depictions of the natives to identify Marlowe's voice with with Conrad's voice. But I think we can safely say that we should not do that and that there are places where we might get some ironic distance between Conrad himself and uh, and Marlowe. Marlowe himself is a curious character, right? Because he's he comes across in the frame narrative as very brooding and mysterious and you know sitting in the dark and lighting up a cigarette and you know using phrases like uh and this also has been one of the dark places of the earth mm-hmm. you know referring to the thames and and london but in his actual narrative he comes across as quite vulnerable and disturbed by his emotions and and willing to describe all of those feelings so you know, we start off with the sense that we have an experienced sailor about to tell one of his yarns, although the, the frame narrator tells us that, you know, he's was not just a seaman, but a wanderer, and that his stories don't have the simplicity of a typical sailor story. So the way he puts it is that the yarns of seamen have a direct simplicity, the whole meaning of which lies within the shell of a cracked nut. But Marlowe was not typical, and to him the meaning of an episode was not inside like a kernel, but outside, enveloping the tale which brought it out only as a glow brings out a haze, in the likeness of one of these misty halos that sometimes are made visible 
by the spectral illumination of moonshine, mm. just to give an example of the wonderful Conrad's wonderful prose. But that that's an apology, right, for about what's about to come. <laughs> this is not right. a plotted, fast-moving story. <laughs> this is going to be a very uh, a, a an autobiographical rumination, and it's going to involve a lot of someone reflecting on their their own inner life. That's what that little preamble is is telling us. Right. I really like what the narrator says about. He, he mentions a couple of things about Marlowe that are not typical, as you mentioned, the way that he tells stories, but also the fact that he's a man of the world rather than a sailor, which is really interesting. He makes this, this uh, strange distinction between the two because he says, the, the original narrator says, a sailor is someone who basically just stays in one place, mm-hmm. right? They're, the ship is their home and they just go around the the oceans and their the atmosphere of that is relatively unchanging and the ports that they see all kind of run together right but for the most part they're just on the open ocean and that has a kind of a, a sedentary quality to it he said you know the sea is always the same everything glides past uh, there's nothing mysterious to the seaman unless it be the sea itself and that has some inscrutability I was thinking about this that. Um, you know, the difference between the sea life and what we were talking about in, in Billy Budd, where it, it breeds this kind of hothouse <laughs> quality, or like mm. uh, like I said, you know, like a, a boarding school quality or something like that. <laughs> Whereas th- this distinction with what Marlowe does by taking a steamship and going into freshwater, mm. I think there's a distinction with the kind of craft that that is, obviously. Mm. Um, like it's like a steamship is inherently one step less removed from nature. Like a sailing ship has at least, you know, to rely upon the winds and, and currents and various things. And in a certain sense, it's just a, an elaboration on a relatively rudimentary form, which we see the, the natives using, you know, the hollowed out log or whatever that they use at, at a certain point in the, in the story that Conrad notes. But the steamship is obviously removed from that. It has a more innovation and technological advancement behind it. But also by going into the continent on this this freshwater journey, it's, it's a very different kind of experience. So you could be a wanderer and still travel by ship when you're penetrating into the heart of the continent via freshwater. So it's a very different kind of experience, which I think is, I don't know, that was intriguing to me, that distinction. Yeah, there's not the same sense of this well-oiled machine, in the case of a, the way I've put it is a little <laughs> ironic, but... In the case of a uh, a big sailing ship where you have a bunch of, you know, it takes an enormous crew working together cooperatively and some very strict hierarchy going on. It's sort of a, a uh, microcosm of law and order, as we discussed in Billy Budd, or even maybe the overreaching nature of the law. And the steamer, right, is just, he. I think he calls it a tin can. It's mm. it's just a piece of crap, basically. Yeah. And it sinks, you know. The, the manager tries to take it up the river early, and it sinks, and then he has to spend months repairing it. And Humphrey Bogart pulls it on yeah, a rope. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a piece of crap, and he has a few native crew members, and then these useless white men pilgrims, including the manager, with their staves, just this confederacy of dunces, you know, that... Um, that he's going to carry with him. Yeah, there's something entirely decrepit and impoverished about the whole thing. And the men aboard, of course, are in a way desperate. They're they're simply mercenary. They're simply after 
ivory and they don't even subscribe to the official you know they may do some lip service to it but there's a firm distinction between these faithless pilgrims again as he as he calls them who are not all that wedded to the humanitarian uh the supposed humanitarian mission and that a true believer like uh like kurtz so yeah that sense of rapacity combined with pointlessness the pointlessness of what's going on i think the steamboat is a good way to highlight that because it's you know as you said it's a technological advance in a way but it represents a degradation it requires less human excellence to to use it and it's less glorious it's less and they're able to train the local tribesmen to basically just perform you know the automatic and somewhat mindless duties of just what like feeding the fire Mm -hmm. on the steamboat i guess there's the suggestion maybe that uh, that the language barrier isn't even an impediment to being able to teach somebody how to work this thing. Yeah. Yeah, there are other, of course, elements of supposed European progress that we see um, are completely useless and broken down over the course of the book. Like we see the uh, the fact that they're supposedly building a railway, but they're blowing up cliffs mm-hmm. that aren't even in the way of the railway. Yes, yes. Uh, the, the pipes uh, that they've gotten shipped to them that they need for some purpose have all fallen into a ditch and are all broken um, mm. and completely useless. He can't he can't get rivets, which we could talk maybe about the significance of that, of course. I think it's a little a little on the nose, um, you know, to hold things together as they fall apart. Anyway, regardless, one wonders how much of this is, you know, at the beginning of the novel, Marlowe says something like, you know, efficiency saves us. And mm. I think he means to distinguish himself as as actually, you know, a British citizen there uh, talking about the British and saying that their love of efficiency uh, provides them with something, some way to, to shore themselves up in the middle of the jungle, the wilderness, chaos. And so I wonder how much of this is supposed to be a uniquely Belgian lack of, of efficiency. I mean, obviously, a lot of this is about how European, any, any form of technology um, will break down in the wilderness. But since Marlowe expresses certain sympathies with with the British way of doing things, I wonder about that. I, I also wonder about the particular ills of the Belgian Congo and these pilgrims who come, they're jokingly called pilgrims, of course, and they come to get ivory, basically. That's their, their god. It seems to me that other than that terminology, which is used ironically, and the sort of idea of a general cause and of a kind of um, civilizing force that the Belgians seem to think that they're bringing and that Kurtz and Marlowe's aunt seem to be advancing. Other than those things, there isn't any missionary force that we see in the Belgian Congo. And, you know, I'm assuming that it's there, but, uh, mm. but that was kind of like an essential component of British colonization. So the sort of lacking of any belief system and, and of any of this efficiency, I wonder if this is just a particularly corrupt form of a particularly corrupt enterprise. Yeah, I I think so. For all the evils of colonialism, I think famously this is the worst. Um, And it's a a very different style than British colonialism. Although Conrad does take pains to make Kurtz a representative of of Europe. Um, So later on, and, and, you know, say his mother was half English, his father was half French, all Europe contributed to the making of Kurtz. And by and by, I learned most appropriately, the International Society for the Suppression of Savage Customs had entrusted him with the making of a report for its future guidance, which would become important later on. 
all of Europe is complicit in this in the sense that Europe gave the green light to Belgium to uh, go ahead with their project. Right. So it, it is about the evils of colonialism in general, even though it's an extreme example of that. But it's, I, I think, in a sense, it's supposed to reveal the core of colonialism, which is exploitative. Right. It's just more obviously sinister and and exploitative maybe than some other examples but i wanted to go back to the concept of efficiency versus the incredible impracticality of some of the things they're they're doing before we do can i just say yeah i think that you know marlowe's maybe uh, admiration of kurtz though is also an admiration of this belgian colonialism's their nakedness and their uh, exploitation of the land which i think you know, this this brand of colonization, I mean, granted, it does have some humanitarian names behind it, but it's not, in a way, it's better than, than a, a missionary colonization like the British that sort of takes that exploitation, which we may argue is perhaps lessened by that missionary element, you know, uh, so it's not as obviously exploitative, but that takes a fundamental exploitation and kind of baptizes it. So I think that what Marlowe kind of appreciates about Kurtz, maybe, I don't know. I, I was trying to figure this out because he seems to like people who are just, who are honest. He hates a lie, as he says, he bores a lie. And so mm. there's something very honestly disgusting about what's going on in the Congo. And I mean, we could talk about whether or not Kurtz is a liar or whatever. I know that's a complex thing that I'm just sort of grazing past. But yeah, the the kind of how bad it is and how horrible it is, is so naked that there's um, at least, um, for the people who are there, a total lack of ambiguity about it. That is a really interesting question, which I didn't. I don't think I gave enough thought to this, but it's he, he's disgusted by what he sees at the very beginning, right? Mm-hmm. But he's also intrigued by Kurtz from the very beginning, or it, or it sounds like he is. It's hard to say because he's, you know, by the time Marlowe has formulated his story, he's already met Kurtz, and so everything... Uh, is written through the lens of Kurtz's gloriousness or whatever it is about whatever yeah, it is about point. Kurtz that yeah. is attractive. I don't think that occurred to me enough through the story that um, here he is despising all the atrocities that he sees and yet uh, worshiping Kurtz throughout to the very end. Perhaps that doesn't hold up to close scrutiny. <laughs> I mean, I think in the end, Kurtz, you know, what interests him about Kurtz for, for Marlowe, it's a reflection on the, you know, I, in the beginning I said this is a reflection on his reaction to colonial atrocity. But it's also, and this is what, one of the things that makes the book really interesting, it's a reflection on the effect of just being out in the wilderness, being out in the untamed nature. We get a lot of descriptions of the natural world and its effects on the psyche of Marlowe. And ultimately, its effects on the the psyche of Kurtz. Those two things go together. I think often in a simplistic description of the book, the idea is that Kurtz has gone native and that in Mm -hmm. some way he's been influenced by the natives. But in fact, I think there's not really a lot of evidence for that in the book. It's more about the relationship to the wilderness. The word wilderness is used repeatedly. So that is part of what fascinates Marlowe and makes Kurtz in a way an, an alter ego for him is this uh, reflection on the uh, the effect of the untamed wilderness on a quote-unquote civilized human being. Yeah, I agree. I didn't find much evidence for the whole going native thing either. The whole reaction of Marlowe to 
the injustice of what's going on happens pretty early on. So as he's taking the French steamer down the coast of Africa towards the mouth of the river. And by the way, Conrad Wright never says Africa or Congo. He leaves everything unnamed um, mm-hmm. and, and generic, but we're going to just assume for the sake of argument and simplicity, that's what he's describing. And they're, you know, they're landing soldiers. They're stopping at all ports and they're landing soldiers. And the sense of irreality comes over him. And, and it's the irreality of being a passenger. There's something unnatural about that because this is on page 14 in my edition. The idleness of a passenger, my isolation amongst all these men with whom I had no point of contact, the oily and languid sea, the uniform somberness of the coast, seemed to keep me away from the truth of things within the toil of a mournful and senseless delusion. The voice of the surf now and then was a positive pleasure, like the speech of a brother. It was something natural and had its reason that had a meaning. Now and then a boat from the shore gave one a momentary contact with reality. So then he describes the natives the natives occasionally approaching in a boat and describes their wild vitality, as he puts it, um, an intense energy of movement that was as natural and as true as the surf along the coast. These are the sorts of descriptions, of course, that will get Conrad accused of racism and the identification of the natives with, with something natural and primitive. So they wanted no excuse for being there. They were a great comfort to look at. For a time, I would feel I belonged still to a world of straightforward facts, but the feeling would not last long. And that's when we get into the whole man of war description, right? So it starts mm. out with just, just this general sense of there's something being unnatural about being a, a passenger and doing nothing, which I think corresponds to the role of the colonizer, which kind of masquerades as a kind of work of some sort, but is really not because exploitation is not a real form of work. And that's why we see all this, you know, the signs of impracticality that you mentioned. Mm. But now there's this wonderful scene with the man of war shelling the bush. Yeah, I love this. Uh, Do you want to read part of it, whichever parts you think? Are- yeah, let me just read some of that. In the empty immensity of the earth, sky, and water, there she was, incomprehensible, firing into a continent. Pop would go one of the eight-inch guns. A small flame would dart and vanish. A little white smoke would disappear. A tiny projectile would give a feeble screech, and nothing happened. Nothing could happen. There was a touch of insanity in the proceeding, a sense of lugubrious drollery in the sight, and it was not dissipated by somebody on board assuring me earnestly there was a camp of natives. He called them enemies, hidden out of sight somewhere. Yeah. I love that. It's so yeah. <laughs> it's so wonderful, and I love the, the ironic, almost like, scare quotes that uh, Marlowe or Conrad put around these terms like enemies or at one point prisoners or convicts as if these people have done something wrong and right. deserve right. deserve judgment from the colonizing force. I think you're right. This is sort of the first place where you, you know that you're in for something really special in this novella. Just it's it's a very poignant description of the craziness of what's going on. Yeah, and right, right before it, and, and right before what you read earlier, just one little thing that I wanted to note. He notes the names of the places, and he's still kind of, you know, the as he's traveling down the coast, has this sort of sailor relationship to it uh, that the original narrator describes, where he's sort of watching everything go by and imagining and whatever. And um, he notes that the trading places' names 
uh, seemed to belong to some sordid farce acted in front of a sinister backcloth. So the, the coastline is like sinister and some, and I really love that too, because first of all, because of the, the theatricality of it and, and, um, and to a certain extent, I mean, how little. And his name's right, like Little Popo. Sorry to interject. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like the absurdity of that is kind of funny. Yeah, in a way, like the wilderness always remains for Marlowe, kind of like the way that the sea is is described with the original narrator, where it's just this sort of unchanging and mysterious and you know silent is used over and over, a silent thing that forms the backdrop for him in the same way that the constant sea is just the constant backdrop for the sailor. But what I love about this is the fact that, of course, we're going to discover that, like, the back cloth isn't what's sinister, right? What's sinister is what's happening in front of it. It's the colonization efforts are, mm-hmm. yeah, they're farcical, you know, but they're also sinister. You know, the only time that we get maybe a sinister back cloth is when, it, it, this just reminds me of, of when they pull up to that interstation and they see the Harlequin, mm-hmm. who's kind of a farcical figure. And so, like, behind him, the station itself is where Kurtz is, you know? So the sinister back cloth, if you will, behind the Harlequin is the place where where Kurtz has penetrated the back cloth. It's not inherently bad in and of itself. In the same way that I, I noted that when he talks about the map being filled in, this is, I guess, a, another thing, this, this back cloth, that Africa used to be a blank space, but that it had become a place of darkness. In other words, because it had been filled in, and quote unquote discovered by the Europeans, it had taken on darkness. So the darkness, therefore, is is what it's the it's discovery, it's the penetration of of the land by the colonizing force. The darkness is something that the colonizer is is bringing into the land with him. It's not. It doesn't seem to there therefore be inherent in the land or the people prior to that. And the you know the ivory, if anything, is what's being taken out of the land which is obviously not darkness. On page 23 in my edition, he will talk of the silent wilderness that, quote, struck me as something great and invincible, like evil or truth, waiting patiently for the passing away of this fantastic invasion. Mm. And later on at the very end of the book, he suggests that in a way, what happens to Kurtz is kind of the wilderness's vengeance for the invasion, the driving of Kurtz mad, if that's the way to put it. Maybe that's not the proper description of it, but, and that the wilderness is something which awakens brutal instincts. And even that the wilderness in a, in a way is a replacement for Kurtz's intended. That's what we learn towards mm-hmm. near the end of the novel, which is, which is really interesting is that Kurtz is engaged and she's has more money than him. And that's part of what sent him on this expedition to, because he felt insecure about that and he wanted to make his, his fortune. But the wilderness steals him away and makes him bald by sort of patting him on the head and so to speak and spoils him by giving him as much ivory as he wants. So there's a Cersei-like quality to the wilderness. It's he becomes a kept man of these natural forces. Mm. And the other descriptions that I like include this sense of is not just the darkness, but the soundlessness of it. Yes. And the idea that it's soundless, but rioting. Yeah. So he talks about the, the a kind of a dumb immobility sat on the banks. The living trees lashed together by the creepers and every living bush of the undergrowth might have been changed into stone, even to the slenderest twig, to the lightest leaf. It was not sleep. 
It seemed unnatural, like a state of trance. Not the faintest sound of any kind could be heard. You looked on amazed and began to suspect yourself of being deaf. Then the night came suddenly and struck you blind as well. About three in the morning, some large fish leaped, and the loud splash made me jump as though a gun had been fired. So I love that moment. I marked that as as a moment in which silence and darkness kind of converge. Mm-hmm. Then there's the riotousness of of the light fog and the attack, which seems to be contrasted with this moment. But just that fundamental insensibility of the jungle. And, and yeah, I, I think to, to what you were getting at, I, I was more intrigued by the silence versus sound um, dichotomy than the darkness versus light. But maybe they're the same thing. Let me give a few more examples of this. So on page 30 in my edition, the great wall of vegetation, an exuberant and entangled mass of trunks, branches, leaves, boughs, festoons motionless in the moonlight, was like a rioting invasion of soundless life, a rolling wave of plants piled up, crested, ready to topple over the creek, to sweep every little man of us out of his little existence. And it moved not. Later on, he'll say, going upriver was like traveling back to the earliest beginnings of the world when vegetation rioted on the earth and the big trees were kings. An empty stream, a great silence, an impenetrable forest. Mm. So you'll have this idea that something, there's a secret knowledge hidden in the in the wilderness and the sense of the wilderness, as I, as I mentioned before, trying to wait out the invasion or being angry about the invasion and being able to wreak vengeance for it. And that Kurtz becomes the instrument of that vengeance. So that the darkness here, as you mentioned, is not just, so it's there, but it's, it only becomes what it is in relation to the invasion of quote-unquote civilized people. Mm. Because what it does is it combines with that in a sinister way, and that's the vengeance it takes, right? So it, and the sinister combination turns out to be something that Marlowe also repeatedly emphasizes, which is the lack of any kind of check on one's behavior, the sorts of things that come from having police around or whispering neighbors. Basically, the fact that our behavior can get out of hand when we are essentially alone in the wilderness without enough consciousness of other human minds and and to keep our own conscience alive essentially so the the vengeance that the wilderness takes is simply a kind of absence it's the it's mm. the absence of the social that's there in the silence yeah i really like that at some point too he talks about how in europe the monstrousness of the earth has been shackled yeah the earth seemed unearthly Yeah, so he writes, The earth seemed unearthly. We are accustomed to look upon the shackled form of a conquered monster, but there there you could look at a thing monstrous and free. Mm -hmm. So I really like what you're saying about that because it's as if the backdrop, you know, the monster of uh, of nature that hasn't been tamed by any European is also just like the Europeans themselves. It's them. It's their souls. So out here they could live without, without shackles, of course, by shackling the native people. But I think that the idea of time travel is really interesting. You could like read it, I think, as a time-traveling novel. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there is a kind of a, a blindness on the part of Marlowe that has to go into that because, you know, the fact of the matter is the babblings or, or however, however he calls it of the native people 
there is a language there, of course. They just don't know the language or they don't think, you know, they're, they're reading a kind of a prehistoric element into the people. Mm-hmm. Part of it is that they're, they're going back to maybe what an earlier form of European society would have been or, or whatever you want to call it, mixed in with this incredibly difficult landscape and all these, all these other elements which are unconquerable to them but able to be traversed quite well by the tribes and everything. So this idea on Marlowe's part that these people have no language or that they have uh, that there's some earlier form of man we might say is you know rightfully so we might we might say is is disgusting but it's something that is first of all it's it's coming out of Marlowe the narrator's ignorance of the people and it's it it's also i think is expressing something about the Europeans coming into a land where they can't understand the people the landscape is inscrutable to them and therefore, it's presenting back a sort of image of a more natural state. It, it becomes a symbol, obviously, of the absence of civilization, mm-hmm. quote unquote, of, of culture, quote unquote, again, because they're insensible to the actual civilization and culture already there because of the language barrier and other cultural barriers. And so it becomes, I think, just a reflection of the, an essential part of their own nature underneath what within them has been sort of shackled, the monster that has been shackled within them by codes of conduct and and various other civilizing forces within Europe. Exactly. In this very passage, the idea of the unconquered earth, monstrous and free, is associated with the wildness and passion of the natives and the quote-unquote terrible frankness of their noise, which he calls ugly, even though he starts out by emphasizing their humanity and then kind of regretting and feeling guilty about the suspicion of their not being human because it's a disgust at the fact that the instinctual is more on the surface supposedly and in a sense right you know you're pointing out that that in large part is a projection it has something to do with a reaction of the colonizers relationship to their own instinctual life and then marlowe himself in just the, the same passage will say the mind of man is capable of anything because everything is in it, all the past as well as all the future. Mm. What was there after all? Joy, fear, sorrow, devotion, valor, rage. Who can tell but truth, truth stripped of its cloak of time? And then the idea is that you can't meet that truth, which is the truth of the instinctual, the truth of us being driven by sex and aggression and every other instinct you can think of, despite the trappings of civilization. It's not enough to have fine sentiments and principles in order to resist it, as we might think in the context of civilization. You need, he says, deliberate belief. That's the phrase mm-hmm. that he uses, which it's unclear that what that means exactly, although later on he'll suggest that what you need is actually, you know, you have to be in a social context. It's not enough to have a conscience. It's not enough to have all this stuff inside you, but you really do need people around you who are behaving themselves and holding you to certain standards of behavior or things get out of hand. And then in his own case, he says he might have gotten caught up in the ecstasy of the natives and gone ashore, right? Because there, there's at least one description of running into a group of natives who are very curious about the boat and they're, they're not hostile, but they are come up to the boat and are energetic. And he says the only reason he doesn't get caught up in that and go ashore and start dancing or whatever is because he is caught up in work. He is caught up mm. in surface matters and very practical matters like steering the boat, making sure they don't sink. 
all of that stuff. Right. And that is all that keeps him out of that. You know, I think these are some different suggestions about what insulates us from the wildness of nature, what insulates us from becoming, from regressing. Deliberate belief is one suggestion. Social context is another suggestion. Work is another suggestion. And perhaps these things go together, but perhaps also they are implicated in the problem. Work is not, as we've seen, it's not real work in some sense, like the the ditch and the, the blasting of cliffs that are not in the way of mm-hmm. railroads. It's a work connected to to exploitation. So it's it's a very complicated argument or an attempt at explaining all of this. So I think there's a critique of Marlowe here in actually in reading the native peoples as being a prehistoric force because of the cipher in the book, right? So Marlowe finds the Harlequin's book and the Harlequin is Russian and he's he's reading an English language book, but there are notes in the margins and Marlowe finds the book and says, oh, this is really curious. Like, why is there a cipher in a book in the middle of the wilderness? Like, who who does he think is, is going to read these notes or whatever? And the mm. cipher, of course, turns out to be Cyrillic. It's, <laughs> it's, it's Russian. Mm. And so that just strikes me as being a very clear parallel with the lack of understanding of the of the native's language or, or languages, depending on how many tribes they come across, that he reads something into it, which is incredibly more complex and in a way kind of condescending, <laughs> right, than is actually there, which is just your ordinary sort of language, society, whatever, you know, something that, that, that actually binds us all together. That's not a way to distance, but is actually evidence of a civilization. With your insight here and that this projection on the part of the colonizers concerning the dangerous, you know, the instinctual danger of the wilderness and of the natives. And, and then the suggestions about what keeps us in check, work and social context or, or deliberate belief. When those things are actually the problem, right? The harshness and the cruelty of the colonizers is actually a function of civilization, a function of conscience. Mm-hmm. And strangely enough, um, this is kind of a Rousseauian thesis about how civilization corrupts us. And, th- and that's part of, I think, we'll, we can talk about the many meanings of what Kurtz is getting at with the horror, the horror, that climactic moment. I think one of them is the realization you can look at that as someone peering into the, as, as coming face to face with our fundamental instinctual nature and seeing civilization as a kind of veneer for that or just the trappings. But you could also see someone coming to a realization that at bottom, it's not just that civilization is a trapping, but that it is the source of the cruelty it is the source of much greater cruelty than can come about from the wild and the instinctual, right? Animals mm. don't do what human beings do. And this goes along with the idea that the, <laughs> the colonization is a humanitarian mission, being a thin veil, right, for, for just getting rich ivory and rubber. More than that, those ideals are actually implicated in the atrocities. So they're not just an excuse. But those ambitions and ideals are somehow implicated. And, and Kurtz's being a man of refinement, a painter and a writer and all that stuff. Again, it's not just in a intention with what he becomes, but it's implicated in it. You know, I think that's what you're onto here with. What you're reminding me of is how people say, like, how could Hitler be Hitler, even though he was a painter and a vegetarian? And <laughs> basically, what you're saying is that the, the fact that he is a painter and a vegetarian 
is essential to making a Hitler. <laughs> and if he were a vegan, he would be. Then he would who be knows even what worse. He would have done. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I really like yeah. that. That's great. Right, because our conscience. What is it? It's you know, it's a part of us which can tyrannize us, right? And it can. It's a part of us that not only says no to ourselves. You can't do this. You can't do that. And you're going to be punished. But also the part of us that's related to our ideals, what Freud calls a superego ideal, and to the development of our ambitions. And so if we want to think, if we want to understand the cruelty of colonization, we have to understand the cruelty inherent in civilization and those factors in civilization. Not not just the thou shalt nots, but the thou shalts, the, the ambitions and the ideals. And if you say, you know, my, my goal is to civilize people, my goal is to help people, even if there weren't also ivory and rubber, even if that were that were all they were doing, you'd have to question the motives of um, the civilizing force. Are they tra- simply trying to control? Mm-hmm. Are they simply trying to transform other people so that they are, are like them, to make other people like them, to impose their culture on other people? I think it leads us to something that really intrigued me, which is the idea of the restraint inherent in the African crew members on the steamboat. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could talk about that and you can help me kind of tease that out a little bit because um, it, it confused me. He, he's talking about how the Africans on the boat actually outnumber the white people, something like 30 to, to 5. Oh, yeah. This is a wonderful passage. Yeah. yeah. And they've had some rotten hippo meat that they've been eating, most of which these pilgrims have thrown overboard. They, they seem to be cannibalistic, and yet they haven't gone after, uh, you know, out easily outnumbered uh, as they do and, and, and gone after the white people on, on board. And so Marlowe's trying to puzzle as to why that is. He says, they were big, powerful men with not much capacity to weigh the consequences, with courage, with strength even yet, though their skins were no longer glossy and their muscles no longer hard. And I saw that something restraining, one of those human secrets that baffle probability had come into play there. And then skipping down a little, Restraint, what possible restraint? Was it superstition, disgust, patience, fear, or some kind of primitive honor? No fear can stand up to hunger. No patience can wear it out. Disgust simply does not exist where hunger is. As to superstition, beliefs, and what you may call principles, they are less than chaff in a breeze. Skipping down again, and these chaps too had no earthly reason for any kind of scruple. Restraint. I would just as soon have expected restraint from a hyena prowling amongst the corpses of a battlefield. But there was the fact facing me, the fact dazzling to be seen like the foam on the depths of the sea, like a ripple on an unfathomable enigma, a mystery greater when I thought of it than the curious, inexplicable note of desperate grief in this savage clamor that had swept by us on the river bank behind the blind whiteness of a fog. Just really incredible. Yeah. It is, yeah. At the end of that passage, right, we get a callback to what what's actually going on, which is that they have been hearing these shrieks and voices. You know, they're, they're in fog and they can't move. They're eight way miles away from the Hertz's inter, interstation, and they're hearing all these scary voices. And the whites are kind of p- panicking, and the, the Africans on the boat are kind of calm. And the cannibals are saying, you know, <laughs> let's eat them if we kill some of these people. Mm-hmm. And then that's where he gets into this, <laughs> some of these thoughts about these guys must be hungry. They're not being fed. They're being paid in like copper or something, copper wire. A wire. And supposedly yeah. they're going to use that to eat, but they, they don't, they never have the chance to buy anything. And their hip, their rotten hippo meat was thrown overboard. So really, you know, these, these are cannibals and they're starving. And why don't they, you know, as you pointed out, kill all the 
uh, and they outnumber them. Why not kill all of them and eat them? And um, as well, they should. <laughs> yeah, as they should. <laughs> they would have a moral reason to do yeah. that, not just a lack of any kind of scruple. And it, and it is a complete mystery. Um, you know, he'll also say it, it takes a man all his inborn strength to fight hunger properly. It's really easier to face bereavement, dishonor, and the perdition of one's soul. Just to add a little, uh, a few more notes to this too, a, a few lines down, he talks about the manager and says, um, mm-hmm. he was just the kind of man who would wish to preserve appearances. That was his restraint. Yep. So for the for the manager, the, the restraint is obvious. He's this bureaucrat who is backbiting and, and trying to advance his way up the totem pole and his only- And he's pretending to care about the fate of Kurtz at that point. That's the appearance he's trying to preserve, yeah. Right. And his only virtue of success in this climate is his ability to stay alive, which is something else we could talk about. (laughs) Right. He doesn't get sick. Yeah. But then even a little bit further, he talks about the sound of the steamboat filling the native people with sorrow, which is uh, this incredibly sad moment. The glimpse of the steamboat had for some reason filled those savages with unrestrained grief. The danger, if any, I expounded, was from our proximity to a great human passion let loose. Even extreme grief may ultimately vent itself in violence, but more generally takes the form of apathy. Mm-hmm. So I, I picked up on, since this is just a little bit further down than the mention of, of course, the the African's restraint, the manager's own restraint, I saw the unrestrained grief and thought, okay, is is this the answer? Is this the reason why the why the cannibals don't just kill the white guys? Is it because they are apathetic to their their plight? They've been co-opted by the colonizing force, and they've now just resigned themselves to a kind of hopelessness that uh, doesn't even encourage them to feed themselves. I don't know what we could say about that. I would like to think there's something more noble in their restraint than just the fact that, that I'm making this connection, which may be a far-fetched one, with this idea of grief. Yeah. So in this context, he's connecting grief to apathy. It's kind of a contradictory rumination, right? The other English guys are, um, are they English? Why am I calling them English? Have we been calling them English through the whole thing? They might be. I mean, he kind of notes, Marlowe notes when he doesn't speak English with people. So they at least speak English, right? If they're not just like traders who are hired by, you know, English people, but hired by the Belgians. Yeah, it's possible. It's hard to tell without a name. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we're going to be agnostic on that for the rest, of, <laughs> yeah, for the rest yeah. of the episode. But anyway, white guys. So Marlowe's trying to explain he himself wasn't all that afraid of those cries. And he's explaining that because there's not, he didn't get a sense of a hostile intention, just the sense that they're full of sorrow. And then he kind of backtracks and says, well, if there is any danger, then it's the proximity to a great human passion let loose. Extreme grief may vent itself in violence, but it may take the form of apathy. So it can go, grief can go either way. And of course, it does lead to an attack. And the grief is about Kurtz, right? They don't want Kurtz to be taken away. Right. I was just going to quickly interject to say, I think there's there's something more too here, like the fear of the steamboat. Isn't it expressed also as as a kind of terror for other tribes or the fact that the tribes move out earlier on? I mean, here he reads it as, grief over the colonizers moving in when in fact they're upset that Kurtz is going to be taken. But in other parts, I thought it was also that it was actually grief over the colonizers moving in. Yeah, no, I think it can definitely be read that way. Yeah. Okay. Oddly enough, one is supposed to be related to the other. And the way he describes the attack later on, right? It's not aggressive and it's not even defensive. It's protective desperation, basically. 
Well, and ordered by Kurds, right? Right. Well, that's what the Russian will say. That's what the Harlequin will say later on, that Kurtz ordered it. And yeah, I'm, we assume it's ordered by Kurtz, but also we assume it's their own affection for Kurtz that's involved here. But you can read this as about as a reaction to colonialism as well, where any violence that the colonizers might identify with something primitive, it's about grief. It transcends even something defensive. But I don't know how to relate that to the cannibals on board and why they don't eat the white men. He leaves it a mystery, right? He says, this is, you know, this is just mysterious. He calls it as more mysterious even than the grief, which we'll get an explanation for the grief, as I just pointed out. And Kurtz, whether you want to think of it as Kurtz or colonialism. So maybe we are meant, as I think you're suggesting, to identify it with the grief. I think that's like the best explanation we have. That now that I've tried to reason through this, I think you're right on, which is that one form of grief is apathy and maybe apathy is the thing that um, can overcome even hunger. Yeah, so, so in other words, it's not a, really a restraint at all, right? Because apathy isn't a restraint. It's the absence of any force that one would need to restrain, right? Well, it depends on how you read it. Apathy could reflect a uh, lower level tension between the desire to act oh, that's and true. something sure. holding it back. This is something that I'm, that I, I'm now getting a memory of, of reading about a long time ago, I don't remember where, but the, the idea of apathy also is restraining the slaves in America, the great difficulty in any kind of uprising because it was just such a supreme overcoming of grief, really, in mm. order to be able to muster the strength to, to fight back in any way. Yeah. And there's, yeah, much has been written as well, I think, about the, the sense of grief on the part of Native Americans as well. And mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, how did we come to this place here? The idea of restraint and, and, and grief, but we've uh, put off Kurtz almost as long as Conrad has, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, where do, you, where do you want to go with Kurtz? I really like the, I don't like this, sorry, that's the wrong way of putting it, but I, I like the the decorative balls at the top of the stakes around the inner station. And I just knew, I was like, what an odd detail. That's going to be something different than what I think it is. And of course it turns out to be heads, mm. uh, which is shocking. And that's why I don't want to say that I like it, but I, I like how that sort of rhymes with the description of Kurtz's baldness. So he himself is sort of like reduced to nothingness. And the baldness was, Conrad describes the wilderness had patted him on the head mm -hmm. and behold, it was like a ball, an ivory ball. It had caressed him and lo, he had withered. It had taken him, loved him, embraced him, got into his veins, consumed his flesh and sealed his soul to its own by the inconceivable ceremonies of some devilish initiation. This is the point where he's saying that the wilderness has taken the place of his girlfriend, basically, because that's how it starts out. With yeah. Well, and, and in the form of his mistress, kind of. I take her to be a sort of like, yes. if Kurtz is kind of the personification of the colonizer, she's the sort of personification of the colonized. He treats her as at one point as a personification of the wilderness. As a, that, that's kind of what I mean. Yeah. His mistress, who's part of the tribe. The wilderness itself is the one who's made him bald by patting him on the head and who's right. spoiled him with ivory and has basically replaced his uh, fiance back home. I think it's important to note that his mistress here has, an, I think, an incredible amount of innate power and dignity and she's kind of cool enigmatic <laughs> figure standing there with her arms flung out it's interesting but yeah i just i love how it was like and lo he became bald <laughs> well i was confused this is one of the, the places where i had to like figure out what was going on because that whole passage starts out with talk of kurtz's intended 
you know, the fiance. And I'm like, wait yeah. a minute. He's yeah. talking about the fiance. And then he's suddenly talking about Kurtz being bald. What is he saying? Like, <laughs> why is he talking about the wilderness now? And if you, you have to like study that paragraph for a while to say, oh, the wilderness is the uh, competitor for the girl, for the intended and the wilderness replaces mm-hmm. the fiance and which is ironic, right? Cause that's, he goes to the wilderness in order to get money. So he, doesn't feel as insecure about being with someone who's richer, higher in station than him. Right. So we get all these different descriptions about what's happened to Kurtz, what motivates Kurtz. There's just tons of it. So we might as well just dive in and yeah. into a few of them. And one of them is right here. So right after the baldness part, and it's on page 48 to 49 in my edition. Kurtz refers to everything as belonging to himself. My intended, my ivory, my station, my river. That's a really interesting sequence there i think it's hilarious that this all ends up being explained by his relationship with his fiance actually <laughs> it's probably not emphasized enough and when people talk about this book but that sequence from intended to ivory is is very very important and then the idea that everything belongs to him but that was a trifle the thing was to know what he belonged to how many powers of darkness claimed him for their own that was the reflection that made you creepy all over it was impossible It was not good for one either trying to imagine. He had taken a high seat among the devils of the land. I mean, literally. You can't understand. So that's Marlowe talking to the people on the boat now who must seem incredulous. You can't understand. How could you with solid pavement under your feet, surrounded by kind neighbors ready to cheer you or fall on you, stepping delicately between the butcher and the policeman and the holy terror of scandal and gallows and lunatic asylums. How can you imagine what particular region of the first ages a man's untrammeled feet may take him into by the way of solitude? Utter solitude without a policeman by the way of silence, utter silence, where no warning voice of a kind neighbor can be heard whispering of public opinion. So I've alluded to all of this in our discussion before as a lack of social checks, as a lack of social context. And part of the problem is losing that and losing one's inner restraint because of a lack of social restraints. And then he says something which is, a you know, he repeats something that said before, which is that, you know, when these external checks and social restraints are gone, quote, you must fall back upon your own innate strength, upon your own capacity for faithfulness. This is an echo, right, of what he has said with the cannibals. How can they restrain themselves? No one has the inner strength for that. And then at the end of that, we get this idea is that what you need is a devotion to some obscure back grip breaking business, as he puts it. And again, this is another repetition we saw before, right? That he, he had talked about being distracted by work. That's why he doesn't go out and, and engage in ecstasy with the natives. Or that one must have a deliberate belief in order to have self-restraint. All these different suggestions, and I haven't, I haven't been able to think through <laughs> coherent unified theory of what all this means but and maybe there isn't Hmm. one um just just marlo is throwing different things at us but yeah this is one of the explanations of what's going on with kurtz which is that he's been robbed he's been turned into a monster by being coming the wilderness's boyfriend and being deprived of any social context that might keep him in check Hmm. i'm sure a lot has been made of all europe having gone into Kurt and of Conrad being really prescient about totalitarianism and fascist dictators yeah. and all, all of these things that the book yep. predicts. The scenes in here that remind you of the Holocaust. Right. Yeah, the, the Valley of, of Death, which is, oof. Um, mm. and, and I think explicit reference was made there to an inferno 
on Earth, mm -hmm. which was really interesting. It occurred to me that because the river coils and because they're going inwards almost in a series of circles, mm -hmm. and there are three, it's kind of like a simplification of the nine circles of hell, maybe. Right. Right. It seems to me very smart about the way that Europe is is going or about to go as a result of, you know, it makes the scramble for Africa seem like the the Jenga block, <laughs> you know, that causes the series of atrocities and world wars in the first half of the 20th century. And I think the scramble for possession that Kurtz is maybe obsessed with is kind of predicts all of this. So I'm wondering if by claiming ownership He's trying to fill whatever the the vacuum, this lack of belief has created in him. If if we're going to take uh, Marlowe at his word and and say that the lack of belief underneath it all has gotten to Kurtz as this representative of colonialism, and therefore this desire on Kurtz's part to express ownership over something is supposed to reflect this scramble for Africa, which itself comes from maybe a crisis of faith that's happened as the result of the industrial revolution or, mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be, or of proper work of the, the movement from the countryside into the cities and therefore of, you know, a, a disconnect that technology brings between one's labor and the fruit of one's labor, perhaps. And all of these crises that are, that are happening over the course of the long 19th century. So I guess I read his desire to exert possession as a way of filling up his own emptiness. But I don't know if that's uh, what the psychology of that might be or how useful that is or how seriously we should take this idea of, of belief. Like, is it is Kurtz suffering from a lack of belief? Like, what turns him um, in yeah, the, in the jungle? The yeah. yeah. Is it actually the, the lack of dignity inherent in his being an ivy, ivory trader of his methods of exploitation, which has allowed him to be so successful in his work? This is the central question because it's really unclear. And like I said, I think uh, Marlowe throws lots of different ideas at us. On page 56 in my edition, he will say something like, the appetite for ivory sort of supplanted his idealism. Mm. And remember, this is you know, like the funniest and simplest explanation is that he needed to get rich to impress his girlfriend and then got sucked into being a um, someone focused on business instead of what he had been focused on which is the arts and even political idealism the same thing could happen to us if we just got overly interested in the stock market and said all right screw literature and and the arts i'm just going to go make money now and of course you know ironically today kurtz could have just started a podcast and he would have been extremely successful because of his incredible voice and his eloquence <laughs> <laughs> so he wouldn't have needed to go hunt ivory so yeah, so he in a way he's just he's like a, someone who gets sucked into the daily routine of making money except for him it's also an extraordinary routine. He suffers the fate that many of us suffer just getting distracted by making a living, but it's this uh, fantastical version of that. This I think is the most simplistic of the explanations, you know, the the lust for ivory supplanting idealism. But I think we get a more interesting idea around 49 to 50 in my edition where Marlowe is talking about, you know, this is just after the, the talk about restraint and the devotion to an obscure back breaking business. Um, and, and all of Europe's contributing to Kurt. He's been commissioned right by the society, the international society for the suppression of savage customs to do a report. And that report is eloquent and vibrating with 
eloquence, although too high strung, Marlo says. And he goes on on and on about the beautiful writing, and despite the fact that this is written after he's already gone native, after he's participating in unspeakable rights. So there's this idealism in the report, right? The idea that white people in relation to the natives are so much more technologically advanced, and that the, the power that confers can be used for unbounded good. Power for good, practically unbounded. That's, that's the words of Kurtz in the report. And Marlowe says, it gave me the notion of an exotic immensity ruled by an august benevolence and that made him tingle with enthusiasm, which he then equates with the unbounded power of, of Kurtz's eloquence. This gives you an idea of some of the, the complexity to this argument, right? We get this weird elision from the un- unbounded power of the colonizer in relation to the native to the unbounded power of Kurtz's own, own eloquence, which is, of course, the thing that allows him somehow to become a uh, kind of godlike figure among the natives, which is odd when you think about it, right? Because how, do, how does that translate? But that's a, that's a whole other discussion. The reason I'm bringing all this up is because it's. I think the suggestion here is that the idealism is the problem, as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. It's not just a thin veneer for something. It actually is the source of the cruelty and the viciousness and the savagery, right? The, the very thing that they want to project onto the natives, their own savageness, is there in the I- idealism. So the very end of this description... It was very simple, and at the end of that moving appeal to every altruistic sentiment, it blazed at you, luminous and terrifying, like a flash of lightning in a serene sky, quote, exterminate all the brutes, unquote. So that's that that famous transition from this eloquent argument for humanitarian mission to civilize the natives to extermination, and were meant, I think, to associate those two things and i and i made some suggestions before about why that might be you know it's it's Mm. the desire to culturally transform the natives and maybe turn them into europeans or to do whatever whatever it is they imagine they were doing is um can be thought of in itself as a kind of extermination um and the impulse to supposed altruism may may just be an impulse to control you know there's a lot of arguments about the way the the customs were unfair to women for instance that argument was used that the customs were very the native customs were very cruel to women and that was used as a rationale for Hmm. intervening so that the impulse is to moralize and and so i think that's you know what marlo is suggesting is that um in fact kurtz was more animated than usual by that moralizing impulse more animated than usual by the philanthropic aspect of the mission. And that's what distinguishes him, right, from the faithless pilgrims with their staves. He was actually a true believer, and it was because he was a true believer that he could come to personify colonial cruelty most in, in, in its purest form, something like that. Right. Well, and as further evidence to your point, when despite his true belief, I think we're also supposed to see a profound rhetorical emptiness at the heart of that report, right? There's a lot Mm. of grandiose language, but not a lot of there there. And to further that, I think when Marla goes back to England and he meets with several people from Kurtz's past, he meets that journalist who calls Kurtz a colleague, says he might've been a populist politician and says that uh, Kurtz really couldn't write a bit, but heavens, how that man could talk. Mm -hmm. He electrified large meetings. He had the faith, don't you see? He had the faith. 
he could get himself to believe anything, anything. And uh, Marlowe asked, you know, what, what party might he have been? And the journalist says, just an extreme party. So he was considered an extremist, it's called an extremist here, when he must have been animated with this, these lofty aims that you're talking about. So on that side, on that quote unquote positive side, he was an extremist. And then, as you say, where, you know, sort of where the ends meet, he's become an extremist of another kind after his transformation in the wilderness into someone who, who uses these unsound methods, which I think is, you know, the manager quite accidentally hits on a really interesting term there, unsound, which I was kind of ruminating on. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> That's such a great line. Yeah. What is that about? Right. It seems to be not, not sound and not, not voice, of course. I mean, unsound is the opposite of sound, but it's also not, not quite silence either. <laughs> right. Well, the manager says he's not Kurtz has done more harm than good to the company. He did not see that the time was not ripe for vigorous action. Cautiously, that's my principle. So the manager is thinking here about Kurtz's kind of revolutionary. Kurt, Kurtz is a social activist. Kurtz is a social justice warrior. <laughs> I think that's the irony that can be lost with this this book because it may not translate mm-hmm. so well to a contemporary reader but that's the very thick irony here in the in the heart of darkness that kurtz is a supreme altruist and and idealist and that is supposedly what leads to all of this so the the method is unsound <laughs> is it what's great about it is such a it's a such a euphemism for the the insanity that's going on and the the focus of the manager is not on kurtz's you know, is it going native or whatever? You know, the one thing he's doing, right, is he's going on raids of other villages. You know, he's implanted himself with one village or tribe, but he's going on raids with, you know, against other tribes, which is something that did did happen, by the way. So that the manager is, is not focused on the injustice or the cruelty of that, but just the fact that it's it's not practical. It's not good for business. No, I like that. It omits any, any kind of morality, obviously, in the same way that... Uh well, it treats the altruism as if it were a method, and it makes no attempt to distinguish the the original altruism from the degenerate form of it, Kurtz's regression. These are just methods for doing what they're really there to do, which is to get ivory. What then do we make of Kurtz's insistence on wanting no more than justice in light of all of this? So Kurtz tells Marlowe on the steamship, this lot of ivory now is really mine. The company did not pay for it. I collected it myself at a very great personal risk. I'm afraid they will try to claim it as theirs, though. Hmm. It is a difficult case. What do you think I ought to do? Resist, eh? I want no more than justice. And then Marla repeats, he wanted no more than justice, no more than justice. So justice for him means what? His, his just desserts, his being able to enjoy the fruit of his own labor, as it were, um, and not have it turned over to the company who has presumably employed him to procure this ivory. It seems to me that he, he wants to lend his work some dignity by being able to keep the ivory that he's procured by these unsound means. Yeah. So his, you know, it's sort of like a story of someone who becomes miserly or obsessed with wealth, who develops an obsession for something and e- even money to the exclusion of even of its practicality right just just to have it so the 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 issue of the ivory you know he becomes he becomes focused on the injustice of the fact that he simply has to ship it down river 
right? And and wants to keep it, even though what could it possibly mean to him by keeping it? It, it can't be translated into wealth if you just keep it. <laughs> Presumably, he's getting rich off this already, because that's the whole point of becoming a station manager, and that's what all of those pilgrims really want in the end is to become a to become a station manager and to enri- enrich themselves. So there's something completely insane about saying my ivory my ivory can't have it it's not fair because it's not like he's not he's not benefiting from it should we go to the horror the horror yeah which I'll, i should have to better enunciate when i say that or, it, or else it'll sound like i'm saying the horror the horror <laughs> <laughs> it was all about horror in the end yeah. <laughs> i mean what what can we say about that so 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 i guess this is the the subject of of the most intense critical debate about this or the the infinite variety of interpretations that can be teased out of his final words what is it that makes him say the horror the horror so let me, let me read the passage real quick. I saw on that ivory face the expression of somber pride, of rootless power, of craven terror, of intense and hopeless despair. Did he live his life again in every detail of desire, temptation, and surrender during that supreme moment of complete knowledge? He cried in a whisper of some image, at some vision. He cried out twice, a cry that was no more than a breath. The horror, the horror. At a previous point in the book, he suggested that the way nature, the way the wilderness takes its revenge, you know, it's taken him as husband first, but it it takes its revenge ultimately by giving him a kind of insight. Or the way Marlowe puts it is that the soul is made to look at itself and to to see itself. I think there, there are many ways to, of course, to interpret this, but the two most general ways to go about this and, and there, there are ways that are in tension with each other are to, to say on the one hand, the fundamental realization here has something to do with comprehending what it is to be unaccommodated men or to our, our fundamental instinctual natures under all the trappings of civilization. And the other way to go is to say it's a comprehension of the fact that it's not the instinctual that's the problem, but it's civilization itself. Civilization is the source of cruelty and the cruelty is there it's inherent in our civilizing norms in in both our thou shalt nots and in our um thou shalt and our ideals our, our our ideals we're driven these things by um a kind of horrible horrible cruelty and those those two things are in tension with each other but they may also be related right the civilizational norms may um may channel the cruelty of the instinctual. So what do you make of that? That's my general attempt at understanding that. Because I think it is hard to understand. Yeah, I think you're right. This is an encapsulation, too, of, of Marlowe's admiration of Kurtz, right? Because uh, a little further down, so he says he's going to show his his loyalty to Kurtz once more. And he says, destiny, my destiny, droll thing life is, that mysterious arrangement of merciless logic for a futile purpose. The most you can hope from it is some knowledge of yourself that comes too late a crop of unextinguishable regrets. I have wrestled with death. It is the most unexciting contest you can imagine. It takes place in an impalpable grayness, with nothing underfoot, with nothing around, without spectators, without clamor, without glory, without the great desire of victory, without the great fear of defeat, in a sickly atmosphere of tepid skepticism, without much belief in your own right, and still less in that of your adversary. If such is the form of ultimate wisdom, then life is a greater riddle than some of us think it to be. It was within a hair's breadth of the last opportunity for pronouncement, and I found with humiliation that I probably would have nothing to say. 
This is the reason why I affirm that Kurtz was a remarkable man. He had something to say. He said it. Since I had peeped over the edge myself, I understand better the meaning of his stare that could not see the flame of the candle, but was wide enough to embrace the whole universe, piercing enough to penetrate all the hearts that beat in the darkness. He had summed up. He had judged. The horror. He was a remarkable man. After all, this was the expression of some sort of belief. It had candor. It had conviction. It had a vibrating note of revolt in its whisper. It had the appalling face of a glimpsed truth, the strange commingling of desire and hate. So his admiration of him then is to fight the lie that for Marlowe seems to be inherent in all of the other elements of colonization going on around him and to call something by its right name or to look into into oneself or, I mean, we, we could talk too about whether he's looking into himself and the emptiness there or commenting on the emptiness of the cause of colonization. Yeah. Well, I think the two things are related, right? Yeah. Right. Or, or both. Yeah. And, and being able to say that it is horrible in a way that no one else is able to strike out and make that judgment and, and express that belief. So there's something courageous and wonderful in Kurtz after all, just to name it. It's funny because I, I was thinking of the horror in terms of, you know, the instinctual or the civilizational. And here it sounds like it's just about, it sounds very existentialist, right? Like life is meaningless. Mm -hmm. The droll thing life is that mysterious arrangement of merciless logic for a futile purpose, which is a callback, right? To all the instances when he highlights the purposelessness of the supposedly purposeful activity of colonization, right? That, that stuff you mentioned with the, the ditch with the pipes and the, um, the blasting of cliffs that are not in the way. So that's one take on the whole concept of having ideals and seeing through them, right? Because that's, that's what normally gives our life some sort of higher purpose, you know, including the justification for colonization, the, the altruism, the supposedly philanthropic goal. Which, if you see through that, as Marlowe does, and apparently as, as Kurtz does as well, you can take that as a, as a more dramatic instance of seeing through the purposelessness of life in general and having any, any ideals at all, the sort of illusory nature of those things. There sounds like a kind of existentialist redemption in just recognizing that, right? And being able to name it, Kurtz is able to put words to it, you know. His, his eloquence comes through in the end, the horror of the horror. The existentialist theme here would be to say that to face up to that meaninglessness is kind of meaning conferring, like we somehow um, retrieve meaning from meaninglessness by recognizing it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But I think also, you know, recognizing maybe the the foibles and the, the horrible underpinnings of violence that, that kind of infect all of humanity is maybe something also that is being recognized here. In addition to the the idea of meaninglessness, I think that those two things are, as you've said before, are really closely intertwined. So for instance, you know, the opposite of this m might be taken to be the character who I think is the most repulsive in the novel, maybe, who's that uh, company accountant in the outer station, mm -hmm. the man who is residing right next to the Valley of Death and who has impeccably clean clothes mm -hmm. and has taught one of the native women to launder his linen so that it shines and stays impeccably white. 
and he's trying to write down the figures and is annoyed by the moaning, the suffering of the people right next to him because it's distracting him from being able to write down his figures. That rejection of reality, that inability to see what we could say on the one hand is the very literal result of colonization, but maybe what is also metaphorically speaking, the horrors of, of humanity that exist all around us and the mm-hmm. terrible elements in our own natures and in the natures of people around us in the in the violence that maybe underpins all civilizations. Exactly. That ignoring it is one kind of cowardly choice and recognizing it therefore is a virtue too. Yeah. Ironically, right? That's supposed to be a form of restraint. He says over and over again, work, being being distracted by mundane details, being distracted mm-hmm. by running the boat, or in this case, the accountant being distracted, so distracted by his work that someone dying in his office is just a an annoyance. That's supposed to be the civilizing force, right? Or part of it, it's this devotion to work and to efficiency when in fact it's a source of of inhumanity. And I think, yeah, you're right. Part of the the horror is to be able to uh see through that honestly and see that we have to look for if we're going to look for the sources of evil we can't just look to the instinctual or to natives and you know to project and to blame it on on so-called savages we have to look at ourselves and so-called civilization it reminds me of uh, very early on when he tells the story of Fresleven the Dane who who dies in the wilderness when he's uh, poked by the spear mm-hmm. of the native people yeah. after getting into a fracas with them over these two black hens. A great image he gives of when he finally comes back to the spot where Frislevin's body has fallen. There was grass growing through his ribs, which was tall enough to hide his bones. And then just two paragraphs later, he's describing going to, we assume, is Brussels, to sign up to go onto the steamer. He's going to, through the street and he sees grass sprouting between the stones. Mm. Stones and bones, right? It might, mm. be, it might be the bones on which Brussels itself is built. Right. And the, the connection between those two just really stood out to me. He calls it the uh, sepulchral city. Right. And then the, the women who are knitting the black wool are like the, the two black hens. Mm. On the one hand, I think they're supposed to be fates. Like one, one of them in particular, he says is uncanny and fateful. She's knitting black wool as for a warm pall. So on the one hand, they're kind of spinning out the fate of Marlowe and and whoever comes into this office. On the other hand, they're women. And and as you note, with Kurtz going into Africa to seek his fortune specifically for his, his intended, and also these curious ideas are interjections that we get from Marlowe a couple of times about about women and how, you know, it's a very paternalistic Victorian concept mm. that women have to be shielded from the truth. Women are out of it. Keep women out of it is the way he puts it. Right. Yeah. Right. And it, at first it's a kind of an accusation on Marlowe's part. Like he says that women live in a dream world essentially of their own making because they can't, you know, they can't handle the truth, mm. whatever. And then of course, later we see that they're deliberately kept in the dark by men, that Marlowe himself will lie to a woman to keep her in a dream world. And of course, in Victorian society, there was a lot of, uh, you know, shepherding of women, making sure that they retained their virtue, hiding from them certain terrible truths of, of civilization. So there's this idea that the black hens, over which uh, 
the Dane and the natives are are fighting is also the idea that women are in in a sense some kind of or they are the civilizing force maybe or the reason why civilizations are established for certain obvious reasons and that they are maybe underneath it all the kind of bone of contention at the heart of this women are the heart of darkness you've gotten <laughs> no, no, no no i'm just kidding no horror and horror the horror, the horror. Horror, horror and horror do come together uh sorry. Oh. that's terrible uh no but that is no, you are right on because that whole thing about women being out of it that's the segue to the uh intended right and says yes women are out of it in fact the intended she was way out of it and he had left her you know to go to africa when of course the irony is that she's the whole reason he's there because he needs the money or he thinks he does he doesn't really but she's got more money than him and he's like i said goes to seek his fortunes and then it turns out that the wilderness is the woman who replaces the fiance so mm. the women are not out of it i mean they are in a sense but in a deeper sense no the women are are not out of it they're a driving force and they're in this case specifically the fiance is a is a plot wise is a driving force behind the whole story. It just occurs to me too that, you know, Marlowe was telling this story aboard the Nelly mm-hmm. and that, you know, the ships are traditionally gendered as female. So there's yep. something about that, that craft is the, the way that they get there is also the, the driving force too, is a feminine construction. Yeah. I thought a little bit about the desire to escape women. This moment reminds me of Frankenstein as well, where in Frankenstein, the uh, protagonist is Victor Frankenstein is betrothed to his stepsister from a young age to be married to her, oddly enough. And he kind of rebels and invents a monster that kills her and his whole family, basically, or much of his family. <laughs> and has to, you know, he, he has to get himself preoccupied with all of that in order to avoid the domestic scene, right? So you look at someone who has a fiance and she has plenty of money. What the hell is he doing? going off to Africa where people are dying in, in droves, right? It makes absolutely no sense. He's avoiding that relationship and he's avoiding domesticity, but of course he's not really avoiding it. He's being driven into its lap, but in a raw form, right? In the form of the wilderness, which is at bottom, a kind of a strange kind of domestic scene. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. All of this is a little uncomfortable for me, of course, because it's, <laughs> you know Why? what to make of this well because of the inherent misogyny of that or the idea that the you know the terrible quality of the wild place is the idea that it's a feminine place or something but it's a source of life and what that might and the source right of, right know. yeah and and i think in a way of course the irony of the victorian sentimentalization of women and all that is is of course that women are more closely acquainted with life than anyone i think mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and they, they try protecting woman from the horrors of childbirth for instance exactly yeah the word horror should evoke notions like that it should one one right. should think about right and the horror of being born <laughs> <laughs> of being separated from one's mother right well good i mean i, mean, I think that's a good place to start we've yes. we've gone pretty far afield now into the wilderness yes i think we've gone <laughs> just as far into the heart of darkness as as we should <laughs> <laughs> good <laughs> and we can like good rational people we can leave off and go home and enjoy the fruits of our uh, of our labor enjoy our ivory so to speak there you go all right thank you thank you and thank you to everyone who listened to this episode 
I just wanted to say that if you're listening to this on the feed for the Partial Examined Life, you're not yet subscribed. You should subscribe to us directly by searching for us on the podcast app of your choice. And if you like us, a rating or review would help a lot. You can also find us at subtextpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter. To get ad-free episodes and a variety of bonus content, please subscribe at patreon.com slash subtext. Bonus content will include our after show, which we're calling Postscript, which consists of an extra 15 minutes of discussion following the regular episode. Sometimes we'll continue talking about the topic for that week. Sometimes we'll discuss what else we've been reading, writing, and thinking about. When the time comes, we'll be responding to listener emails. And sometimes we'll talk a little bit about ourselves. Subscribing will also get you the occasional full bonus show and several prequel episodes that I did with various guests. Send your feedback and episode requests to letters at subtextpodcast.com. You'll also find us on Facebook at Subtext Podcast and on Twitter at Enjoy Subtext. And once again, thank you for listening.